I want you to know. Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with blues legend and Hall of Famer Bobby Rush. We caught up with him on June 22nd, 2021, the day his new book, I Ain't Studnia, is out and available for the public. He traces the evolution of blues throughout his life and illustrious career that took him over 50 years to become an overnight sensation. He spent decades establishing himself as a juke joint hero with a unique funky blues sound and a captivating stage presence before even landing his first hit. Now at the age of 87, he spends around 200 days a year on the road headlining music festivals, clubs, and theaters around the world. That was before COVID, and he has an interesting COVID story and so much more. Dig his tale. It's a great one. It's a pleasure and an honor. I love the book, man. What a beautiful read. Well, thank you, man. What's the guy oh, going man. on? man. I, I want to talk to you about the book, man. I've been reading it, and I love it. Oh, man. I'm so happy, man. You know, you made my day, man. I thought you were calling me with some bad news. That's good news. No, 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 no. It's good news. And, you know, the thing that gets me, this book is so, it, it, it's divided up so well. I mean, you, it's not like you're running on. Like, you, you, there's so many points in here where you're leading us to where you're going and how things work out for you. And the thing that strikes me most about this book is you are emblematic of the American story that was almost probably. You're going through what you lived through and how how your beginnings were, you actually have, have, have achieved something absolutely magnanimous. Well, thank you for saying that. It was so hard for me to explain what I meant about this book because I wasn't I talking about the negative thing to be negative. I was talking about the negative thing. If I got through those things, you can too. Like just not the end of the world because things didn't happen like you wanted to happen. Just because the racial thing was in, that don't mean everybody racial. You know, yeah, it, it, yeah, it don't yeah. mean that you can't make it. That don't mean it's the end of the line for you. And I want people to yeah. know that just because it happened to me and I got up. If you fall and get up, if you learn from a mistake, it's really not a mistake. It's a stepping stone to what you should or should not do. And I'll just say you made my day, when you call. I thought you was calling with some <laughs> some bad news. <laughs> no, no way, man. This is. This is all good news. And, you know, the one thing that, you know, of all the moments that, that led up to your career, you know, you got shot and you, wow. you worked hard and you did so many things. The thing that really, really got me in the beginning that was beautiful was the fact that you were hiding that guitar from your dad when he pulled it out and started playing it. That had to be a wondrous moment in your life. Yeah, because you've you got to understand that coming from where I come from, that people's was doing the blues with the with people who was in spiritual realms of thoughts and mind. Blues cats was like part of the devil music, you know? And I thought my daddy was going to uh, be down on what I was doing because I, cause I wanted to play the blues, not play in the, because he was a pastor of a church. He didn't uh, demand me to play in the choir. I didn't play in the choir at church. I went to church, but... Man, when church was over, I was glad it was over so I could go to playing the blues. And my daddy never told me to play the blues, but he never told me not to. So that was a green light for me. Speaking of green light, what was that first 4-H show like for you? When you got on stage and you started, you know, emulating those that you've seen and that you love, what was it like to actually see that happen? Well, it, it came from, I didn't go get the 4-H club prize because I played music. I was the only musician in school 
it was a raising corn, man. I raised the biggest ears of corn. You know, as a forties club, like as a as a, as a farmer thing. You know, where you raise bean, cree, whatever you raise, you raise the best of it. And I raised a uh, ear corn, man, was uh, eighteen inches long, man. You never saw ear corn that big. So I taken that, and I won the prize of of the corn that year. At the meantime, when you win, you have to either speak or play something. So I was the guy who, who didn't speak well, but I could play well. And I took my harp and played a song, and quite naturally, I won the, uh, the best musician in school, and I was the only man. I'm like a blind man, a one-eyed man in a blind house, you know? <laughs> so that's what that was the boys school. That's why I won that a few years. So I just kind of taken it up on myself to do my audition and be the musician of the school. And I was the only guy who could play anything. There was another guy who could sing well. Uh name was Douglas. i never forget that. Douglas could sing, but he couldn't play anything. So I would, I would beat him out every time. <laughs> <laughs> he must better sing, but, but he couldn't play an instrument, you know. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I, I'm always reminded of when I read biographies is that you know, as many things that have changed throughout the, throughout the world and even in the world of music, radio has always been powerful. And you talked about that in the beginning, how powerful those disc jockeys were and to hear the music you were listening to. Yeah, it was been so powerful, but uh, I think what was misled to me, Christian, don't make no difference. What I'm, what I'm leading to you is that John R. Richmond, uh, WLAC, Nashville, Tennessee, Late at night, we could listen to the radio and hear the blues. And we hear guys talking on the radio. And at that time, quite naturally, black people weren't known to be very educated. We had some, but most of them weren't very educated. And you could tell when they talk, they talk about black talk. They talk this, that, and, and I can't, and I ain't studying it, and things like that. And, and, and you could tell they were black when they talk. But we thought that people at WLAC were black men because they talked like black people talk. Intentionally, they were they had the job. It wasn't white black men talking. It was white men talking like black people, and we thought it was all black. Honestly, we wow. did. You know, John, yeah. I wasn't black at all. You know, and the guy was. But anyway, that was a that was a way of uh, getting black people to listen to the music. Or, I don't know what it was, but when I look back on it. It's a disrespect to my intelligence, to my people, to my race, to see that goes on. The other way, they were imitating the black people. And, and when I look back, it was a joke. You know, it was a joke. Yeah. It's almost like I, I heard a guy, a white guy one time, playing a song, King, one of Albert King's songs. He said, I've been down, the song is, I've been down so long. I've been down since I began to crawl, like a, like a baby crawl. That's, that's from a kid. And this guy was saying, I've been down so long, I've been down so long, I've been down since I've been getting to Carl. And he called. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of black cats didn't know what he was saying, you know. And most of black people, and most of white people would say, my uh, name of my book is I ain't studying it. But, but what I'm talking about, I'm not thinking about you. You know, you know, just a black yeah. kind of thing. I ain't studying it. I mean, I'm not thinking about you. Get out of my face, you know. You're yeah. the last thing on my mind. You know, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, so but in my hometown, in my raising, if you want some water and you don't want to pass the water, you say, "I'm not, I'm not studying you." I mean, don't ask anymore. <laughs> this is the end yeah. of the line. Don't ask me anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So talk to me about Lewis Jordan. I mean, that he seems like he was such a huge influence on you. Why was that? I don't know. Maybe because I understood as a country uneducated kid, understood where he was coming from. Because he talked about things I relate to. That was animals, cows, horses, chicken, and everything. That Saturday night fish fry. One thing really got me. He sung a song one time uh, that he talked about a buzzard and a monkey with good friends. So as I listened to the song, apparently the monkey was friend to the buzzard. Uh, but the buzzer wasn't that friendly to the monkey for whatever reason. And I used it to my head like a black and white issue, that the, 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 the monkey was a black guy and the buzzer was a white guy. And he had some alt, a, a racial order. And he said, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Let's go for a ride and then fly up in the, in the sky. And the buzzer would say to himself, how am I going to fly? I don't have wings. The buzzer said, well, let's get on my back. He got on his back, and he got in the air, and he started ducking and, and flipping and flopping, trying to throw the monkey off his back. And the monkey wrapped his tail around his neck and was holding on. But the, but the brother perceived the monkey was choking him. He said, hey, why are you choking me? He said, well, stay straightened up and fly right. Stop all this ziggity zack. And that's what, that was the name of the song, Straight Up and Fly Right. Well, my first song was Chicken Head. I was, now you answer this foul. I relate to what what Louis Jordan said about the buzzard. So that was my first big gold record, Chicken Heads. And I always relate to those kind of things, you know? You know? Yeah. By, by, by what I relate to as a young, uneducated boy in, in, on the farm. And, and, I, and I relate to the things that I knew about. I talk about farm things. I talk about the things I relate to. Later on, I start talking about things I, I relate to because... I grew and educated myself to learn to read and write and, and do the things I need to do. Uh, and I taught myself, you know, and I taught myself. Because yeah. later on, I talked in the book how, how my reading and writing got me in trouble because I was reading a pamphlet on a, day, on a desk one day. It's in the book I'm talking about it. And, and the true God was the, 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 talking about what and how I was going to do and get this job at the recording company. And I made the mistake of reading a paper, paper on the table. So one brother said, where did he get that information? He's off your desk. He turned around and said, read that, boy. And these kind of words said to me, and I read it to him. He turned around and told his brother, and he used a word like this. He said, we can't use that nigga because he can read. And I didn't get the job. You know, who was sitting at the table with me was Muddy Water, Bo Dilly, Jimmy Reed, and Willie Dixon, and I think Hollywood wasn't there, but I believe that Lil Walter was there. He was the guy who was in the in the room with me when I read to read this paper. Apparently, particularly Bo Dilly probably knew I shouldn't have did it because he laughed, and I remember that. I didn't know why he was laughing then, but I real, realized that he understood I shouldn't be reading around the white men. Because once they found out I could read, then, then I wouldn't get the deals. Wow. So, you know, you're 87. You've been around a long, long time. This book has to be a pretty big monument for you to actually finally get your story out. Well, it was, it was more hard than getting it out 
and doing it, then the book itself will write it because I tell so much truth on myself and other people around me. It just, and, 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 and be honest with you, the book went all about being done wrong about black and white issues. It was a lot of black people who did me wrong and did me wrong for the white people. It was like uh, a guy had a farm and the black guy was over the farm. He would misuse you and whip you and treat you wrong for his lost man. And that's the way people did me. That's the way people did me. And I talk about this like Willie Dixon in the book. Because he got the credit for a lot of things. And, and I'm going to get a slack from this book from the, from the grandchildren of Willie Dixon and the grandchildren of Muddy Water. Now, Muddy Water's kids going to love it because I'm taking up for them. Because but but Willie Dixon grandkids and kids getting a lot of money for songs he didn't write. How you gonna write for a man who couldn't read and write? But he was in a position that he could take it from because he knew how to put it on paper. You know, and the book actually comes out today, correct? Good today. I did two interviews and I got to do a couple of uh, Fox or TV radio station today and come down the line. But I have about twenty eight, twenty nine most interviews to do within 12, 15 days. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. You know, and, and you've won a lot of awards in your life, and I don't want to know what has been your favorite one, but what award or accolade have you got that just really surprised you, threw you for a loop? Uh, two. Both the Grammys. <laughs> I'll tell you, I have been up, this is the truth. I have been up for a Grammy six times now. I have been up before... And I never thought I was going to win this because I know the politics is played. There's so much issues that goes on. And I know some guys who voted for me, who don't vote for me, all mean well. They didn't know who I was. I was just this guy, uh, this black man who was king of the chilling second, who was considered from the black black audience side. And most of these people who knew me and I was a uh, king or whatever, but they didn't vote. They didn't uh, participate in the political things to, to, to get the news out to about their famous uh, favorite uh, entertainer. But the white people did. But when I started crossing over, then I started getting a lot of vote from white and black. So I think that made a difference. So I was surprised that many white people and the people inside of the business itself that knew about Bible and respected me like they did. I was surprised. But I was, but I was happy. And, and glad of it. And the next one, I said, well, maybe I got lucky, maybe. I'm just lucky. So when the next one came around, thinking about the luck, I said, then I won that. Now I'm surprised again because maybe it's not a luck. Maybe I'm good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> maybe I'm yeah. good at what I do. That, that's, that's when it kind of dawned on me. Maybe I know where I'm going. What do you yeah. hope, ultimately, the reader gets from this book? What do you want them to get from your life and what you've done, your legacy, and who you are. I want them to get that. If I made it through this struggle in, in, in valleys, you can too. I think I would have said something a little bit different if I had waited till a year ago when he did the march on Washington, D.C. I may would have said something a little bit different. But it, but it also teaches me everything has changed, still remain the same. And maybe if you know to change the law, you must treat the main right, you must treat the main equal. But you, but that's in the law. But you can't make a law on a man's heart that you must change your heart to treat the main equal. Because even if you 
even if you do what you need to be need to do to a man because it's unlawful to do. That still don't that don't say you don't have the desire to do wrong to a person. Let me give an example. If you got a speed zone up on a highway street or road or what have you, you abide by it. If you don't abide by it, you get a ticket. But that's for the man who wants to speed. For a man like myself and a few other people, if you don't put the side up, I'm not going to speed anyway because I don't desire to speed. To speed. It's almost like a man who beat his wife. He learned not to beat his wife, but he's still a white beater who learned not to beat his wife. But if you don't have the desire to beat your wife, that's a whole horse of another color. So I'm saying this. I want people to come away from this book looking at me that I know black life matter, but our vote matter most. And one thing I want people to walk away with this book, out of all the things I did and done, all the things I would did too, all the things I could not do because I was black, that don't mean just the end of the road. You must keep pressing on. I want the people to know that if I pressed on, you can too. Beautiful. Absolutely. You know, you've seen a lot of things in your life. You've been around a long time. How would you rank COVID in surviving this year of total lockdown? What, what was this like for you? Hedge. Listen, God had a hedge around me. When I went to the hospital, I didn't put this in the book because the book was already done. When I went to the hospital, I checked in the hospital. My son, who's a policeman, took me to the hospital. And they put me in a room. And I had Kobe. And I heard someone say, so who that you have by this? An 80-year-old black man. They didn't call my name. I just heard through the other room. Somebody said, well, put him in room two. So how old is he? He's old, 80. So now I'll put him in room three. I didn't know what that meant. That means whatever that room was, that was a room you did not come out. You know, I'm a, I'm a black man and, and 80 something years old. That was no hope for me. So, hmm. but now I, I checked in the hotel at Emmett Ellis. Nobody knew that name because I had the hood on my head because I had to chill. I had a hundred five temperature and I was cold. And they put me in a room where there was no bed. There was a chair. I sat in that room. I thought I sat in the room for one hour because when I went to the room, I was in there at 6.20, something, 6 something. But later on, I, I started almost 7 o'clock. I said, oh, I've been here almost an hour. I didn't know that was 6 o'clock in the afternoon. It was the morning when I went, afternoon I went there. There was morning. I didn't know it was 12 hours later. All I looked at the, the watch at 6.30. You follow me? But it was 6.30 yeah. in the afternoon. Now it's 6 30. You follow me? Now it's in yeah. the morning. Now I didn't know, because I was at 105 uh, temperature, I had lost it. You, you follow me? I had lost it. And I'm still in this room. But anyway, my temperature went down to 105. My doctor found out I was there. He said, you got to get you out to the hospital. Now they found out the Emmett Ellis was Bobby Rush. Now, I got a little close now because now they found out this Bobby Rush. You follow me? So my yeah. doctor found out I was there because before that time, all this time, they never connected to my doctor. He didn't know I was there. What happened? You know? But anyway, I came home and leading to how I feel, I was, God had his hedge around me and delivered me yeah. from that because I had no medicine. I had no nothing but Tylenol. That was all I was taking. I did nothing. They did nothing. It took me two weeks to get my test. 
and it took me two and a half weeks to get them back. That was almost five weeks. And by that time, if I had it, which is if I had it or whatever I had, was five weeks I'm gone. I'm I'm I'm, I'm I take it I'm, I'm, like I'm, I'm well now. You follow me? It yeah. took me just that long to get results. And I think it because I was who I was as a black man, as my age. That's my yeah, thought. Wow. So, so that's yes, how did I make it through? I made it through because God brought me through. There was nothing I'd taken. I was just trying yeah. to drink liquid and take Tylenol, asthma, whatever I could take to keep my hip and bridge, keep my fever down. That's all I had. That is amazing. My final question to you is this, Bobby. Everyone has their perception or their idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans. But you're the one leading your life. Who do you think you are? <laughs> to my kids, I'm granddaddy. To my great grandkids, I'm great granddaddy. To my family, I think they think I'm. They think I can jump over the moon. They think I'm a superstar. They think I can fix anything that happened in the house. When it comes to the house leak, the roof leak, the, the, the concrete break, they think I can fix it. They think I'm. They think I'm a handyman. And they think I can just do everything. And in my age and time, I get old. I'm old and I get tired like anybody, but I think my family don't think I'm get don't ever get tired. I got nine sisters and brothers, and they all kind of rely on what I say, what I believe, and my approach to everything. Uh, even even though I have a brother older than I am now, still living. Even when they, all of them are still living, they call me Junior. They say, "Well, something come up." Just let's see what Junior think about it. So I have to be careful. What I say to my family and how I say it, cause they believe in what I say, and sometimes I just don't know what to say. I don't have to be right, but they trust my judgment. And I just wrote this song: making decisions sometimes sure can be hard. Making decision when you got making decision about an old man cry different from a child cry, cause kissing can and hush don't cry don't make a grown man smile. So I have to be careful about my decision I make. Because I make my decision for my whole family, and they watch my decision. And my decision will always be right, you know. You know, I'll be right. And in this book, I, I, I talk about it and laugh about it. I'm telling the truth about most of the things in the book. When I said most of the things, I said I went sleep with a fat woman on more. I lied about that. You know, that part I lied about. <laughs> you know, I said that in a joking, joking fashion because, hey, yeah. you know. I'm not perfect. I did so many things, and I and I went through hell and high water. I talk about me scheming and trying to make a living and doing time for things that I shouldn't have done that I knew about a conspiracy. You know, I, you know, everybody know now that I don't have no part to do with no no drugs or anything. But I got caught up knowing in the, knowing people around. I got caught up knowing the Ray Charles and people who do it, and and I was. And they do nothing but give information. That's the same thing as doing it, you know. Yep. If somebody walk in the room and says, well, anybody here wants some uh, wants some dope? Well, here, give me $50, I'll tell you what. Give me $100, give me $1,000, I can tell you where you can go get it. Or who wants it? Well, who? Well, they believed in me. Oh, hell, here, go down to room 2 you'll find Ray Charles down there. That ain't right to point nobody else like that. But I tell these kind of things in the book, you know? Absolutely. You know? That's beautiful. You know? 
Bobby, man, thank you for the story. Thank you for the music. You're a titan amongst men. Thank you for taking some time out today. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you, mate. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview. We give you a bit of insight into the finest blues musicians and jazz cats in Memphis, Arkansas, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Bobby for his time, cool, and energy. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.